For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. All right, welcome to Bet the Edge. I'm Jay Croucher, back from Chicago and Miami. Plus 700 cash, and the weather was actually better in Chicago, Drew Dinsick. Uh, we're back from Stanley Cup Finals Game 3, uh, which was magnificent. Uh, the Panthers beating the Knights uh, for losing Game 4. And then Heat Nuggets Game 4, which was uh, a little bit more anticlimactic, but still a good game, uh, and it was still good to, to be there and... Uh, and see the GOAT up close and personal uh, and see them effectively end the series, I think. But uh, let's start there talking game five of the finals. We'll talk a little French Open wrap-up and some US Open uh, at the end. But let's start with the basketball. Uh, Any hope for the Miami Heat, Drew, tonight or uh, in the series? I mean, they're a... They're turning themselves into a three-point variance type of team, so you can never say that you have you can rule them out. Rule them out. I mean, they could have a hot night shooting. They could shoot 50% from three, and at that point, yeah, they could beat the Nuggets and force a game six. I don't think it's very likely. I think the market is correct in that the Nuggets are nine-point favorites here. I would have made it nine and a half. Um, so yeah, actually eight and a half here. You can get it at BetMGM apparently. So. Uh, they want the favorite money. Uh, okay, best luck to them. Uh, but I think ultimately, yeah, the, I mean, the Nuggets, uh, you know, they've, they've been the better team the entire time. They probably should have swept. Um, they just have this weird thing of kind of letting the heat hang around in the beginning of the fourth quarters of these games. I don't know exactly what is going on, why the heat wait until the fourth quarter to play the good plays uh, and why the Nuggets can't exactly get their offense going until, uh, you know, their backs are against the wall in the fourth quarter. But uh, uh, for whatever reason, uh, outside of that kind of weird, you know, uniqueness about the series, it's been a little uninspiring. Uh, I think everybody's pretty much ready for summer. Um ready to turn their attention to the NBA draft. Uh, and, you know, I mean, if we get a game six, that'll be fun. Uh, if we get a game seven, that'll be fun. Um, but I think it's going to take, uh, you know, the heat to have an electric night of shooting. And for whatever we've seen, it, you know, things have just cooled off for the team overall since we uh, saw them last in the Eastern Conference Finals. So um, not expecting much uh, tonight and uh, pretty much ready to move on. What about you? Yeah, uh, no, I think the series will probably end tonight. And if it doesn't, um, then it will be pretty fa- heavily favored. Well, the H- Nuggets will be, what, three and a half point favorites if it is a game six like they were in game four. I will say being at the game uh, and sitting relatively close to the Nuggets bench mm-hmm. was fun. And a couple of things. One, Nikola Jokic in warm-ups. When I was living in Denver, I'd go to a lot of Nuggets games and see Jokic in warm-ups versus... Uh, what he was doing on in game four. And I've never seen him so amped. He was like the Tom Brady clip uh, before the first Super Bowl where he's like banging helmets with teammates. Uh, where Jokic <laughs> was doing like full quarter sprints. He was ramped up for that game. And then when he did his ankle and came out, uh, DeAndre Jordan on the bench asked him how the ankle was and Jokic waved his hand like so-so, not great. Uh, and then he came out and looked pretty much pretty close to 100%. And also, <laughs> he just I don't think he really needs his ankle because he doesn't jump on his jump shot. He doesn't really jump full stop and he doesn't really run uh, yeah. outside of his warm-ups. Uh, so I think that... He will be fine. Uh, and the other thing is that, I mean, just being at the game, you just, it just 
it was overwhelming just how much bigger the Nuggets are than the Heat. Poor Caleb Martin just driving into a forest of arms and limbs. They just couldn't do anything. And all these games, it just feels like the Heat, they have to play almost perfectly to just be down five at the start of the fourth yeah. quarter. Like it's just so much of the break right for them to just stay in the game. And I know they didn't get the shooting variance. Um, but the last thing from the game is that it was very clear that Jimmy Butler is just not right. Um, he <laughs> wasn't like in warm-ups or anything. Like he's not running. Uh, he's not using, extending any effort. Uh, there were a couple of drives where he looked re- really in pain driving. So I just don't think he's, he's close to 100%. Um, so credit that he was able to put up a relatively efficient 25-7-7 uh, in game four while not being right. Um, the other thing is, is Butler was making like 30% of his threes in warm-ups. Like he's not a good shooter. <laughs> it's just not, they weren't really coming close either. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's a strange series. I kind of wish it had been Nuggets-Celtics because I think that they're gonna people are going to wrongfully put some asterisks next to this Nuggets run because they beat, you know, three playing teams or whatever. But I, I think they would have destroyed the Celtics, honestly, and I'm kind of sad we didn't get that matchup. But at the same time, uh, all, ca- all titles count the same and, and Jokic is rightfully going to be considered the best player in the world after this. Yeah, I think the asterisks would have beat anyone. Um, that's not, it's not that they got it because of weak competition. Uh, they, they are that good. Um, and I guess if you want a fun way to bet tonight's game and I haven't done this yet, so, you know, credit, I I bet $0 on this game five outcome so far. I think I have a small piece of, uh, nuggets for one, but it's not going to nothing to write home about. So I'm kind of out of the game. Um, but I do think it's pretty obviously that, that there has been a correlation between heat uh, being live in these games and hitting threes, which means the total is going to be too low, right? So if you like heat at plus eight and a half, if you like heat three to three to one, I think you might as well parlay it with over two or nine and a half because there's no world in my mind where the heat are close in this game, but it's not, but it's because they're have solved something defensively and they're winning a 98, 99, 98 type of game. Like I, I just, it's going to have to be shooting is good for them. They get to 110, uh, and in that world where they're covering or winning this game, that is, I think, flying over 209. So, and the, I think the opposite is true. Like, there's very much a world where the Nuggets come out hot in the first half. They're uh, they're up 50 to five to 45 at halftime, and the Heat, you know, one two three Cancun, uh, and you know, we just don't see much of a second half of a game here. So, I think Nuggets correlated with the uh, under Heat correlated with the over, uh, and you know, there may be some fun ways to make some you know longer. Uh, you know, some longer odds, same game parlays out of that just to have something fun to cheer on tonight while you watch presumably the last game of the NBA season. Yep, indeed. Yeah, I think this series, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the last time the Heat were in the finals with fans where they played San Antonio, San Antonio, um, they come in, they win game one, they lose a close game two, and then they just destroy the Heat in the two Miami games. And then game five is just kind of a procession of raining threes and Ginobili has the big dunk over Chris Bosh. I don't think this Heat team is going to pack it in uh, like that Heat team did where I think LeBron knew it was going to be his last game uh, as a member of the Miami Thrice. But uh, I do think they are just overmatched uh, and the rope could be uh, let go off in the same way. Uh, I think it m- may resemble the Boston game five against Miami where it just okay. kind of out of hand and it's just too hard to bring it back so yeah um 
looking forward to uh, to the Nuggets probably closing this out. All right. Before we get to French Open wrap-up and a look ahead to Wimbledon, a reminder to download the Rotoworld app to receive breaking player news all season long. Stay ahead of the competition by favoriting players on your roster. Get the latest injury updates, player news, and much more delivered right to your phone. It's available in the App Store today. So, Drew, on the flight back from Miami, I was watching uh, Carolina Mikova in the final against Igor Sviantek. And while I guess she... Uh, exceeded expectations given that she was a heavy underdog and she, you know, had a break point in the third set to go up 5-3. I came away from that extremely unimpressed with Mikova <laughs> because I thought she absolutely bottled that where it was right there for her. She's up two love in the fifth set, a third set and I think she lost just eight straight points to give away all the momentum. And then she's got opportunities uh, 4-3. She's got juice to go to 5-3. She loses that uh, break point as well uh, at 4-all. And then she just loses the last game, which felt like the biggest lock of all time after she <laughs> failed to break Sviantec that she was then going to get broken herself. But uh, what were your takeaways, I guess, from Mukova's run? Uh, and looking ahead to Wimbledon, what to think of the women's side? Um I mean, Mukova's run was long overdue. Like, she's a good tennis player. She should be in the conversation regularly among the top 10 in any major tournament because she's got that, you know, that uh, ceiling. Uh, she's been kind of stunted by injury. Her throughout the middle portion, you know, pandemic and injury kind of, you know, double-edged kind of took out the the development portion of her career where she would have gotten to that level, I think. Um, and now that she's kind of in the conversation, I think it makes women's tennis more exciting. Now, I don't think she ultimately backs that up in Wimbledon, even though she's kind of been on record that she likes grass and hardcore better than clay, which is amazing that her first slam final was clay. But um, I think your breakdown was correct. Uh, she had that match. She had a, she had a title in her hands, basically, and uh, let it slip through. Not... You know, it was, I think she was closer than Ons was last year, really. Yeah, like, it was It was right there. Uh, and, yeah, that's going to be tough to overcome. Um, you can't give you get more chances than she deserves. And she obviously, something uh, went a little sideways with her game in that second set because she was in cruise control up 3-0 in the second and then all of a sudden, like, had to you know fight for her life twice down the home stretch before losing the, that second set. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a weird, unsettled match. I didn't really get a, a feel for what was going on with either player. I just know the outcome is congratulations, Iga. You remain the best women's player in the world. And uh, now three out of what will presumably be five, six, 10 uh, clay titles when it's all said and done because uh, you know for whatever it's worth she's just got that much of a margin over the rest of the field when it comes to clay tennis and um, you know the questions now turn to can she you know can she translate this game to grass um, I love 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 the top of the pricing on this board in terms of correctness <laughs> which is to say we came out of the French Open last year where you could won more convincingly and she was like proverbial favorite to win Wimbledon. And it was, uh, what are we doing here? She played like seven matches in her life on grass. Like there's no way she should be this price. Uh, and now there, like there's been a little bit of a lesson learned where I think people realize, you know, there's not as big of a margin between Iga and Rubakina and Sabalenka, surely. Um, and that's reflected in the odds. And then you have to absolutely have Anstrabor in the mix because of her grass level like sure skill set is perfect for you know performing well on grass and i think that's probably where you start stop 
Like there are four women that can win Wimbledon, in my opinion, and they're at the four at the top of the board. Um, so I think uh, realistically, they've kind of got it right. I think you can basically say that the margin and the vig in this market is player five through six, one, one twenty eight. I don't think realistically many of them have a chance of beating any of the big names on the board. And Rabakina probably is kind of the one you absolutely have to have circled because she didn't really have to play much at the French Open because of the early withdrawal due to illness. And, uh, you know, she's got the mentality that you, you're you not worried about what you saw from Sabalenka in the semis. You're not worried about what you saw from Jabor in the quarters, right? Like the mentality is just not a question with uh, Rabakina. And, you know, I don't know. You, you, you've been, you've long been a, I want to take a swing against Iga. What, what is, what is your current uh, temperature on that? Yeah, I think, I think Rabakina should be the favorite here over Iga. I would just take her over Iga head to head. And speaking to the mentality, I mean, Iga, I mean, she gets through these finals, but she did the same thing against Ons in New York where that final was done and dusted. And then she opened the door. She does wobble her her ground strokes can get a little bit loose. She had a uh, pivotal double fault on break point against Mukova as well, but she just did enough in the end. Uh, last thing on Mukova, by the way, in the final, in those two key games that decided it really at 4-3 and 4-4 in the third, she kept on having Iga come to the net. Just that's how the points unfolded. Iga was at the net a lot. And Mukova kept on trying to hit these inch-perfect backhand lobs. It's like... Iga's not great at the net. You have to make her play a shot, Carolina. And can you stop? <laughs> when I played tennis, uh, the backhand, one, I just don't like players hitting lobs in general because it's such a low percentage chance as opposed to attempting a passing shot where at least then you have the opportunity for both a winner and to force an error. But Mukova, it's like when you're playing the backhand lob, it's all wrist. Like you've got to whip it in to get top spin so that it can dip in and then kick on. And she's just bunting with her forearms, these ones that are going way long. And she's like, you got to make her play a shot. Um, but anyway, I think that that was kind of spoke to the mentality where she wasn't going to win that final unless Iga gave it to her. I think just with the shots that she was playing, she wasn't attacking Iga's second serve at the end of the third set. And Iga was good enough not to give it to her. Uh, and I think that... You know, until you see someone break through at a slam final level, you can just never quite be sure. And that's why Sabalenka's semi was so disappointing because she was so tough against yeah. Rabakina in Melbourne uh, in the Australian Open final. Ons very shaky against Rabakina uh, in the Wimbledon final, though I don't think she bottled it as much as Mukova did against Iga. But in terms of anyone further down the board at Wimbledon, I agree, like, beyond the top four, it's not super inspiring. The one that I would throw out is Beatrice Haddad Meyer, if you can get her in the 30-to-1 range, just because she does play well on grass. And also, I came out of um, her semi against Iga more impressed uh, with... Had admire just because I mean she's a fighter like she doesn't give oh, yeah. she doesn't give matches away she doesn't have the talent level of these other players but unlike Mukova like she was she was dueling eager in that second set and eager had to take that from her so I think um, BHM would probably be my only look further down the board mm. even then like twenty five to one. Uh, not super, super appetizing, but if you get 30 to 1 or bigger, I think that that's worth a swing. And then Mukova, I mean, if she begins the drift, we've seen that she's got the talent. She says that she likes grass more than other surfaces. Um, so that's th those would be the ones that I would look at. Uh, on the men's side, 
I mean, we go through all of the kind of handicapping and everything, and we just end up with Sviantek and Djokovic winning the slam. Do <laughs> <laughs> about nothing. Two best players in the world get it done. Really weird semi. Obviously against Alcaraz, uh, where his just body just completely abandoned him, beginning in that third set. Um, by the way, uh, as a quick aside, when players clearly aren't physically right, these next service game winner markets are something to really look at and target live because Alcaraz, I mean, he was going from like he was becoming uh, going from like minus one fifty five to hold serve to being like a plus two twenty to hold serve, and not yeah. saying that those fluctuations were necessarily wrong, but those are giant fluctuations and they just create chance for error. So it's just something to always pay attention to when a player looks like they're playing hurt. But uh, what did you make of how the men's side unfolded and, and looking ahead to Wimbledon? Yeah, I, I mean, the major takeaway is experience matters. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> like, that was uh, a, a wild kind of uh, way that the market uh, treated Alcaraz's chances from Jump Street. In that match in particular, I did not ever think it was going to be, you know, much more than a coin flip. And he went off, what, almost minus 200? I, I was shocking uh, the amount of support that Alcaraz had in the market. Just a, kind of a little bit of everyone wanting to be on the ride for the first French Open title, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, I, he it was impressive in the fourth round. He was impressive in the quarters, but not to the degree where I thought he should have been anywhere close to that big of a favorite against Djokovic. And sure enough, the fact that it was a physical ailment that took him out instead of just flat out, he got outplayed, which I thought he was getting outplayed. Uh, you know, at least it seemed to me like the first two sets unfolded exactly the way Djokovic wanted them to, which is that he didn't really fire many of his bullets, got an easy first set with Alcaraz just extremely amped up, right? Like he was really fired up. You could tell like his adrenaline must have been absolutely pumping out of his, uh, out of his ears. Um, but the uh, second set, you know, he just forced Alcaraz to play more points, play longer rallies uh, and really kind of, you know, dig in and, uh, you know, kind of absorb some damage, uh, knowing that he was going to be able to outlast him just in terms of, you know, endurance. And uh, it unfolded in a rapid collapse for Alcaraz physically, but I think that was pretty much plan, the plan that Djokovic came in with, and it was a great plan. Uh, and so I think I kind of want to just say, you know, like the strategic advantages that he has just from the experience that he's uh, you know, brings to these matches is is going to be tough for any of the young players to overcome. Um, at some point, physicality will be something that he has, you know, is, he, we, we're seeing cracks, right? Like this is pretty clearly he wasn't 100% you know, elbow coming into this tournament. He didn't have great warm-up results at all. Uh, he hasn't played a ton of tennis this year, really. And so, yeah, there were definitely some questions about where Djokovic is physically. And in the end, it didn't matter. Uh, and so I think, you know, we'll get to the point where that does matter, where he does, uh, you know, the physical aspects are significant enough that it does open the door for these younger players. But until we get there, it's just, um, it's just crazy that we got, prices we got on Djokovic pre, pre-tournament really he should have gone off as the favorite just because of the experience in my opinion and um you know and, and his path was easier really he didn't have to play as as significantly tough challenges as Alcaraz did in the uh, in the lead-up rounds even though Alcaraz made short work of those so um yeah as we go forward uh, Djokovic has the experience not just um at the best of five level but specifically on grass because the grass season is so short 
there are so very, very few uh, opportunities for these players to get their feet under them on grass that it's just has made it uh, difficult for anyone to close the gap on him in terms of just talent and skill when it comes to grass play. Um, now, I've seen enough positive out of Medvedev this season to say that he should pretty probably be your second choice here over Alcaraz. And that's maybe a little bit of a controversial take, but I think with his rank, ranking and with, you know, he's going to be on the opposite side of the draw. Um, and, uh, you know, realistically, uh, uh, the quality you saw from him on the clay swing generally, uh, and the fact that he didn't play at the French Open, so he's a little bit more rested. Uh, I think all that makes Medvedev a pretty, uh, a pretty obvious second choice for me after Djokovic. And I'm, if, I'm, if I'm getting squirrely, if I want to, uh, to take on the favorite here, that's the way I'm going to do it. I don't think anyone down the board is is priced correctly here. Um, the my fourth choice after uh, Medvedev and Alcaraz probably be Andy Murray. <laughs> I think Andy Murray's playing really well on grass. I don't know if you saw any of his Serbaton Challenger title, um, but he's dialed in. He's obviously been pointing at this tournament. And he skipped a huge. Ch- he skipped the French Open so he could tune up on grass. Like the guy is pretty clearly, uh, you know, dialed into this. And then uh, outside of uh, Murray, you, know, you probably want to give consideration to some guys who we just haven't seen play well or play much this season, like the uh, or, you know who, you know, Hubie Hercatches uh, of the world, and you know guys that have just impressive service uh, and can really, uh, you know, do, uh, you know, do some damage on grass who you just haven't thought about in a while because we haven't seen them. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think any of the other kind of young players, the runes, the sinners, the roods forget for you. I, I think you could basically cross them all off because this is going to be a learning experience for those guys. And they could go out early to, uh, to the likes of uh, Roberto Bautista Agu or, you know, just somebody who's not that good, but has played a lot more grass tennis and can get the better of them. Does that, does that read? Does that check out? Oh yeah. Janik Sinek can lose to anyone. He gets, <laughs> uh, he gets in his own head, which he does every single big match. Yeah. So no, uh, yeah, no, no appetite. For those, I mean, Kasparu just seems like a guy destined to uh, lose in the finals of Grand oh Slams, God. as he has <laughs> Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. On Alcaraz and the pricing uh, for that semi, I think that everyone was just so seduced by the level that he showed against Sitsipas, kind of washing away the fact that he almost blew that third set against yeah. him and the level really fell off. And I think the thing with Alcaraz is that, like, he's like playing in a theme park and Djokovic is playing in a science lab where Alcaraz, he just Mm. seems to be playing a different sport when he's on. And I think there is a chance that, you know, like here's the talent where he could be the greatest tennis player of all time. Like I think that's in play for him just because of the level that he gets to. But at the same time, like Djokovic, just his dissection of Kachanov in the quarterfinal after he really wobbled through the first set and ultimately lost it. Like he just broke Kachanov's spirit and mind and just did it in incredibly impressive fashion. And Alcaraz mm-hmm. still looks like he's kind of playing in a playground uh, sometimes and doesn't have, I think, maybe the the five-set strategy that Djokovic has obviously honed, um, you know, over almost the past 20 years at this point. So uh, I think Djokovic is still clearly the guy and, um, and is rightfully favoured over the field in Wimbledon. All right, before we get to the US Open, uh, a reminder, uh, this Sunday, Baltimore brings the show to historic Wrigley Field on Sunday exclusively on Peacock. Watch Aaron Hicks, who's the interesting uh, name uh, candidate for this game, and the Orioles take on Damsby Swanson and the Cubs in the first game 
of the day on MLB Sunday leadoff. This week, the action gets started at 12.30 Eastern. A couple of fun teams. Cubs, not quite as fun lately, but um, still in the mix in the uh, woeful NL Central. And the Orioles are one of the most fun teams in the league. So that will be a good game. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? In Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. All right. Also a good game. U.S. Open of golf. Um, yeah, a fair bit happened uh, while I was away. Uh, seems like golf... Uh, is a new world now. Uh, do you think that everything that happened last week, like what kind of impact, if any, do you think it will have on the US Open and, and maybe the live players, maybe some of the more prominent PGA Tour players like Rory McIlroy? Does this affect pricing at all? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I would love for there to be a good angle. And I'm kind of disappointed because I feel like the... I mean, the entire live golf thing last year, yes, it, it unlocked some of the most hilarious content on Twitter in a long time, like just wild memes and funny stuff. And like, can you believe this? Like it was, it was a lot to take in, um, but it ultimately kind of felt lose losey. Uh, I don't really love the idea of an antitrust lawsuit turning, you know, making golf into a, even more of a monopoly. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's and there's weird vibes all around about who's ultimately winning and getting, you know, just just in general, it doesn't feel like uh, the good guys are winning in any way, shape, or form here yet. So uh, I'm a little, uh, uh, res- you know, a little reticent to kind of get excited that the, you know, that we're we're merging tours and you know this the the nightmare of live is over um, because I, I just don't love the vibes at all so far. Um, that said, I, it also is disappointing from a betting standpoint because uh, it was pretty clear we were developing um, a bias in majors where the live guys were getting a little bit underpriced, a little bit underrepresented in the market. And, uh, they were coming in a little bit more fresh and focused than the PGA tour players, just because of the nature of the calendar. Um, and that's now going to go away. So you're not going to really get to exercise these advantages. And you've already seen some of the market making books prices on Kepka and, and, uh, Cam Smith and, um, you know, some of the guys with better chances, uh, from the live tour are they're kind of right there, right in the mix uh, at the top of the board. So it's not like you're getting a steal on price on these guys anymore. Um, and that's too bad. Cause I really was excited to play Cam Smith in this tournament. I was excited to play Cam Smith at the, at the uh, British open. Uh, and you're not going to get any we're close to the same price now, which is kind of a bummer. So um, ultimately, I, I do think uh, Kepka's not, you know, yeah, okay, he guy only cares about majors. We know that. That doesn't mean that, you know, fair price should be close to Rom's price, in my opinion. And um, and similarly, McElroy, I don't think I don't think you can point to his performance in Canada and say, okay, problems are solved for him. He may have some kind of side uh, distractions with, uh, you know, a lot of people asking him questions about live this week that, that may ultimately not help him at this tournament. So I think Rory's probably a scratch. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of the potential for there to be distractions, I think the entire U S open handicap comes down to who can really shape their game to excel at a very unusual course. Uh, 
Uh, and I think course history here is going to matter, which is why I think, uh, you know, the guy like Max Homa should be closer to the top than he is. Uh, and that if I could only have one, uh, you know, one shot, one kill, it's Max Homa in the uh, 28th one range. What about you? Okay. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I will say that at the Panthers game, uh, I was at on Thursday night, I was sitting about two rows in front of a suite uh, in front of um, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, I think Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas, and they didn't seem overly concerned about the existential crisis uh, affecting <laughs> golf. They were just uh, pretty happy to watch Matthew Kachuk and the boys. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to have too much of an impact. And again, it's something where even if it did have an impact, it's so unquantifiable it's like well how do you concretely um use that to impact your handicap or your pricing it's the same thing or at the Ryder cup yeah brooks kepka and bryson dechambeau hate each other like yeah maybe that makes the u.s less likely to win but probably not like kobe and shaq won three titles together uh ben simmons and joel Embiid. did that impact them losing to the hawks uh maybe or is it just Embiid's knee? Like, it's just so difficult to quantify these types of things. So, yeah, I wouldn't be um, be using that to to specifically, you know, go after one player um, or not another. Yeah, in terms of guys that I'm looking at here, uh, I think Colin Morikawa at 33 to mm. 1, given that he has uh, prior course history. Um, you know, he has experience in California. The 2017 Walker Cup, he played uh, at this course, played really well. That's a long time ago, obviously, but that can't hurt. And also Morikawa, you know, he's he was scratched because of his back at his previous start. Um, yeah. I think that's impacting his price. Also, his putting, as it tends to go, um, has completely abandoned him lately. At the same time, like at a longer price for someone like Morikawa, I don't mind dealing with injury uncertainty and a bad putting form because he might just be fine. He might just be healthy and his putting can turn as well, you know, as it has uh, in winning two previous majors. So he's a guy that I would look at. And then the other one who's gotten some activity in the market this morning is Jordan Spieth at 28 to one. I think the course difficult course requires kind of an artiste like mm. Spieth, uh, I think could help him. And he's also, after being just all over the place with injury and form, finishing fifth at the Memorial, I think is a really good sign for him as well. So those would be the two guys uh, that I'm looking at. Uh, any other thoughts on the US Open before we wrap up? No, I just would say that it is, we are kind of in a, in a, a macro cycle when it comes to major tournament golf where there's not really any point on looking down the board. I don't really get uh, a sense that anyone outside of you know the current top twenty in terms of price has that much of a realistic shot of putting together four good four good enough rounds to win this tournament because um, you know the the cream is pretty clearly risen in golf to where the these top guys are so 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 good even uh, you know the the you, know, you, you just the, there's no realistic opportunity i don't think for anyone to kind of catch lightning in a bottle and steal a u.s open here so um that's kind of the way i'm looking at an outright board in general nowadays for golf and you know i think you know the the close calls we've had was mito Pereira was he uh, kind of in the uh, 500 to one ranger and almost got it one home uh, well, a couple of years ago 
yeah, like that, like those kind of stories. There may one of those may happen, but if he, if ultimately a, a, a true long shot gets across the finish line at a tournament like this, considering how untested a lot of these guys are with this particular course, uh, I'll be pretty surprised. And uh, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit out on a limb taking on a guy like Homa to win his first, uh, you know, first major at a course where he's going to be under a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation, but uh, I like kind of the idea that, uh, you know, he's been pointing at this tournament since he's known that the U.S. Open was going to be at the L.A. Country Club. And, you know, I think ultimately uh, uh, he's got the mental toughness to uh, to be able to win his first title at, uh, you know, first major title uh, at this particular venue. So, um, yeah, let's go Max Homa. Okay, let's go Max Homa. All right, don't forget to check out NBCSportsEdge.com for more information to help you with your wages. We'll be back Wednesday for a special edition of Bet the Edge. Uh, Until then, good luck with your wages and we'll see you then.